0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute.
1: It's not exactly fear of failure, it's fear of being judged. And so you gotta kind of overcome that and say, you know, I'm not gonna be perfect, but I'm gonna try stuff. And if you can develop that attitude, it unlocks a lot of that creativity you have inside of you.
0: That's Tom Kelly, author of Creative Confidence, the book argues creativity and innovation aren't only reserved for creative types, but everyone can tap into creative potential. Kelly is founder of IDEO, a global design firm, and he's written two other books, The Art of Innovation and The Ten Faces of Innovation. For his latest book, he interviewed a 100 people, many who doubted their own creativity. He recounts their stories on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Later, we'll hear from Dr. Nancy Andreason a leading neuroscientist who researches highly creative people and how they think. She says there's debate around what constitutes creativity.
2: Is it the same as having a high IQ? Uh, Does it require talent or skill? The best definition is that it's an ability to perceive things that are novel or original and yet useful. In a lecture, she talks about
0: illuminating moments in the lives of creatives and what characteristics they share. But first, Tom Kelly of IDEO is interviewed by his colleague, Fred Dust, about his book, Creative Confidence.
1: What is creative confidence? What what, what does it mean? We think of creative confidence as two things in almost equal measure. Uh, the first is the natural human ability to come up with great ideas. And we really believe this is natural. We think everybody's got it. Some people have successfully buried it a little deeper than others. But it's there, <laughs> and everybody, and we've we watched it. We interviewed 100 people that, that you know, successfully unburied it. Uh, so it's half that natural human ability. But it's the other half, and probably equally important, is the courage to act on your idea because especially in the business community, but we, you've talked to people in lots of different parts of life, they're in a meeting in which something that is important to them is being discussed, and they have an idea, right? And they think their idea might help with the topic at hand, but they kind of look around at the landscape of the meeting, and they look around at the culture of the organization that they are a part of, and then they do a kind of a mental calculation and they decide that on balance, for themselves, it's best not to raise their hands. If I raise my hand, people might think I'm weird. You know, if I raise my hand, I might attract the attention of the devil's advocate. If I raise my hand, gee, that's a lot of work, I'm not gonna raise my hand, right? And so they don't, they don't raise their hand. And that idea, we don't even know yet if it's a good idea. They're not sure, they think it might be. The idea runs down the drain. Meeting ends, they go back to business as usual. And so you got to have both, right? you got to have the, the ability to, to generate that idea and the courage to at least voice it and hopefully act on it, prototype it. So, I, mean, I have
3: a question. And uh, if, for those of you who were at the opening yesterday, Alfred Woodward uh, did Woodward did a really amazing, I think, lovely kind of conversation or a big idea around creativity. And one of the things she said was, um, "The creative impulse is in our bodies like blood, or something like that. <laughs> and so the implication being that we all carry it. it's all right. it's all it's all in us. Um, and yet, it goes away. And I, mm-hmm. and I think the notion is that even as, as children specifically, we mm-hmm. really um, embody creativity. And yet, as adults, often many of us won't identify as, as creative. Right. What is that?
1: Like, how does it get broken down over time? Well, so think back to kindergarten, <coughs> right? If you can remember your own kindergarten days or your kids' kindergarten days, everybody's creative in kindergarten. There's that great guy, Gordon McKenzie, used to go around and speak at schools, and he'd ask each grade Uh, You know any artists here and he says kindergarten not only is everybody an artist everybody's a two-handed artist Me, 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 I'm an artist, right? And he says in the first grade, you know, they're still hundred percent, but One-handed they're one-handed artists (laughs) and then it progresses and he he goes through and he gets the end of the school day And he's talked to all these groups and gets to the sixth graders, you know And so sixth grade, This is a lot of this starts happening researchers say right in the fourth grade is a pretty pivotal moment for this self uh, Description about being creative so he asks the sixth graders, uh, any artists here? And he gets two or three hands, you know, people. And they're nervously looking around, like not wanting to be judged by their peers, right? Oh, people are going to think I'm weird if I raise my hand and say I'm an artist, right? And so Gordon McKenzie says to the sixth graders, he says, hey, wait, he says, what happened here? You know, he tells them about the progression of his day, how it started with the kindergartners, who were all artists. He says, what happened here? He says, what happened to all the artists at your school? He said, "Did." Did all the artists here transfer out? Did they, did they, are they all off all at the art school, leaving just the non-artists behind here? And he said, "No, no. I think something far worse." He says, "I think someone or something has told you in the last six years that it it's not okay to be an artist." And he said, "Never mind everything else I said today." He says, "Kids, I want you to go home. I want you to remember this. It is okay to be an artist, right?" And so what happens? One of the things that happens is a A uh, really interesting breakfast this morning. We were talking about failure a lot. And people do fear failure, even though we know that's how you learn, right? Skiing, right? We're in one of the great ski resorts of America here. Anybody ever learn to ski, right? Anybody ever learn to ski without falling down, (laughs) right? If you say, okay, I want to learn to ski, I want to be a great skier someday, but I never, ever, ever want to fall down, that's the same as saying, I never want to learn to ski. Right? Failure is a part of that process, and we kind of forget that. But with those kids, and then especially with us adults, it's not always just the fear of failure, it's the fear of being judged. Right? Along the way, because you see kids when they like knock something down, the first thing they do is look around to see if anybody saw it. You know, and really no harm done if they knock the chair over but nobody saw it. Right? It's the fear of being judged. And so that's a part in that meeting when you don't raise your hand. It's not exactly fear of failure, it's fear of being judged. And so you've got to kind of overcome that and say, you know, I- I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm going to try stuff. And if you can develop that attitude, it unlocks a lot of that creativity you have inside of you. So
3: the book is actually really all about um, unlocking that. And Tom hates this, but if you if you like to read a little bit but not a lot, chapter seven has all the how-tos. So you can just kind of read read, read that read that chapter, and uh, it'll get you through everything you need to you get. Go. Um, uh, it, it would make a nice slim pamphlet, I think. Yes. Actually, it's like. But one of I'm going to throw out a couple things that are kind of I, I would say triggers to the ways mm-hmm. you think about creative. And I'd love to hear your responses and kind of why why sure. is that core. And so I'll start with the first one, which kind of uh, figures heavily in the book, which is empathy um, sure. and, and understanding people. Why is that an important uh, creative trait, um, as you see it?
1: Sure. Um, So there's problem solving that we all try to do every day. And uh, a lot of people burden themselves with the thought that says, oh, I have to have all the answers, right? If I'm really smart, I got to have the answer to this tough problem. And in fact, you almost never have the answer, right? But a lot of people, they're forced to kind of pretend that. And so what we've discovered is if you first have kind of some humility about it that says, okay, I don't have the answer, but I know how to get the answer. And the way I'm going to get the answer is I'm going to understand the humans in this equation a little better. I'm going to go out in the world and I'm going to sit with people and I'm going to observe them and I'm going to talk to them. You, You not only get help solving your problem, you get help with what we would call need finding because sometimes the problem doesn't even present itself to you. You have to go out in the world to find, to articulate the problem. Right. And sometimes, by the way, once you find the problem out there in the world, the solution's easy. right? But the, w- with all of our work, we start with empathy. And, you know, we, and this is not about the opposite of technology. We are blending technology with humanity. And what we find is if you get that mix right, then you can create technologies that people love. Can you give an example? Need. I'd just be curious to. Sure. Uh, blending technology with humanity. Um, Oh, here's a, so interviewed 100 people with the book. I love all of the interviewees. I mean, love them. And so uh, I promise I won't tell you 100, uh, you know, time and all. But um, so perhaps my favorite one, and some of you may have heard this story because it, we love it so much. Uh, you might have heard my brother tell it, for example. But... Um, so we meet this guy who's just a wonderful guy. His name is Doug Dietz, and he works at uh, GE Healthcare. And if you know GE, this is a serious company, right? They've got metrics for everything. You know, they're really, uh, It's really intensely managed and very, very much about technology. And Doug creates these very high-tech machines, these medical scanners, like MRI machines and CT scanners. And he's proud of his work, and uh, he, uh, you know, he's good at it. So at GE, when you're finished with a project, they have this thing called voice of the customer in which you go out and you see your your product in use and you ask some questions about it. And it all on the surface sounds exactly like what we're talking about. Like humans, you go talk to humans and you see what's up. Well, except there's this part about empathy. And so Doug really hadn't done it with much empathy. And so he, he does, he finishes one of his projects. Two and a half years. Takes a long time to make one of those big machines. Two and a half years, new machine out in the local... Children's Hospital. And so he gets a chance to see it. And he he welcomes this chance. And so he goes and he talks to the technician who runs the machine. And um, Doug, telling his story, and you can see Doug tell it himself in certain TED med talks. um, Doug says, I'm so embarrassed now when I think about what questions I asked. Doug, by the way, very emotional about this whole process. Doug cries when he tells the story. I'm not going to cry. But... um, He says, every question I used to ask that technician was about patting me on the back. Well, have you noticed this feature? Have you used this yet? Did you know it's up for a design award? You know, it's all about self-validation. So he did this, he, he, uh, he finished his conversation with the technician one day uh, after his new product release, and he's now leaving the scanning suite. You know, it's in this big room that's isolated. And he's leaving that suite, and just as he's leaving, he happens to cross, it was just kind of our luck that this chance meeting happens. He, happens across this family. It's a patient coming in to be scanned in Doug's machine. And it's a little girl, and the girl is crying. And the, the parents, he says, you know, tension written all over their faces. And as they pass, the, the dad is kind of whispering to his daughter saying, um, honey, now we talked about this. You can be strong, right? And Doug's like, what's up with this? You know, this is outside of his field of knowledge about this great machine he makes. So he goes back and talks to the technician, and he says, so wait, what's up here? Like, problem patient? You know, what's happening? And um, the technician says, oh, Doug, Doug, you didn't ask this question. She says, you know, your, your machine scares the heck out of kids. In fact, she says, you know, Doug, you didn't ask about this either. Your machine is so scary to kids that we have to anesthetize 80% of our pediatric patients so they can survive, so they can endure the experience of being in your machine. And Doug, who's this super sensitive guy, has a personal crisis. He goes home and tells his wife that he might have to change jobs. He might have to change careers because he's always been so par- proud of being part of the healing process. And now he's had this awakening that says, I make big machines that scare the heck out of kids. right?" And so he goes to his boss. Uh, he's not one to hold his emotion back. And so he tells his boss this story. And the boss sends him to this executive ed program at Stanford University, where my brother that my brother founded. but Anyway, you know, it's only there for a week. It's a week, and there's nobody else from GE there, and it's not even other R and D people. It's people from from finance and HR and different parts of different organizations. But while Doug is there, oh, and the week is all about starting with empathy. It's about you know blending technology with humanity, right? And while he's there, he gets this idea, and he goes back to GE to tell him how he wants to kind of reinvent his machines and. I'd be interested in hearing GE's version of this story sometime. But um, what Doug says is, well, how much did they like my idea? Well, let me just put it this way: I got zero budget and zero schedule for my for my idea. And as you may know, that's how corporations express their love is, you know, budget and you know, schedule. So he's got zero budget, and zero schedule, but he puts together an all volunteer army. It's um, it's GE people working in their spare time. It's people from that children's hospital. It's people, very importantly, he, he had the insight to engage a local children's museum. I think it's called the Betty Brinn Children's Museum. And together, they reinvent Doug's machines. Now, I talked about blending technology and humanity. You cannot touch the technology. You touch the technology, that takes two and a half years and re- requires all these regulatory approvals, and so they don't. And so what they do, and a skeptic would say, well, Doug, all you really did was cover the machine with with graphics. And they did, in fact, cover cover the machine with graphics. And so Doug's machines, they call the adventure series now, there's one that looks like a spaceship. And there's one that looks like a pirate ship. And he's working on one that will be a San Francisco cable car, whatever. But it's not just, and by the way, it's not just the machine. It's the floors. It's the walls. It's the ceiling. It's this immersive environment. But really important to the piece, with the help of the Children's Museum, they write a script. In the script, like to the, for the pirate ship, for example, the script says, OK, Johnny, today, we're going you know, to put you inside the pirate ship. But while you're in the pirate ship, you have to lie perfectly still. Because if you move, the pirate might catch you. So you have to lie perfectly still. Johnny, do you think you can lie perfectly still? And yeah. Yeah, it turns out Johnny can lie perfectly still because in that hospital, the rate of anesthesiology goes from over 80% to under 10%. And Doug, who still takes the 10% to heart, says, Tom, I can't get it to zero. He said, there's other medical complications. I can't get it to zero, but I can get it under 10%. And Doug now goes back all the time. He says, he says um, you know, he, he goes back. He doesn't talk to that technician anymore. He says, she's got nothing for me. <laughs> right. He says, I, I talk to the patients. I talk to the parents. You know, he says, I live in an environment, and, you know, people from the business community will know this, this pattern. You live in an environment where everybody's got a metric, you know, but everybody's happy with their metrics. He says, GE's got their metric that says sales go up and market share goes up because this, they have, like, 16 different of these adventure series scanners out there. He says, the hospital's happy because throughput goes up. These machines are not cheap, as you may know. And what happens is patient shows up, they discover the patient needs anesthesiology, they call for the anesthesiologist. Now, I don't know about you, but I've called to the anesthesiologist twice in a hospital, both times in the delivery room. And has anybody noticed they are not waiting outside the door, <laughs> right? You're a good 45 minutes. And some of you, there was at least one woman in this room screaming in that room I was in, like, now, anesthesiologist, now. And they still wait 45 minutes. So, you know, from a, the patient standpoint, other things are happening. But from the hospital standpoint, it slows throughput when that happens, right? And so that's a metric for them. And throughput goes way up. He says, Doug says they can have their metric. He says, here's my metric. I go back all the time. He says, I talk to the parents and the patients. He says, I'm back in the the scanning suite one day, talking to a young mom whose daughter has just been scanned in my machine. Doug's got this idea, which I kind of like, which is aromatherapy. Doug's idea that day is he's going to spritz the smell of pina colada into the (laughs) scanning suite. And I said, really, Doug, are you sure? Pina colada? I'm not sure a kid knows what piña colada is, you know, and he says, oh, no, no, Tom. Not the kids, the parents. He says, I've studied this really closely. And the parents are carrying all this stress. And they are inadvertently transferring their stress to their kids. And he says, my theory is that the smell of a piña colada will trigger relaxation response in in adults. And I'm thinking, yes, that could work, right? (laughs) So Doug, he's back in the suite. And he's talking to a young mom about the piña colada smell. And um, as he's talking, the little girl comes up and kind of tugs on her mom's skirt, mommy, mommy. Mommy, and eventually she's talking to Doug, but eventually she looks down. And she says, yes, honey, what is it? And this little girl looks up at her mom and says, mommy, can we come back tomorrow? <laughs> He's, so Doug says, there's my metric. He says, I went from 80% of kids so scared they needed anesthesiologist to, mommy, can we come back tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Right? So that's technology. GE's great technology blended with Doug's humanity. And it's been tremendously successful. And some of you may be happy to know Doug's next Thing to tackle is the mammography suite, and. <laughs> and, and, and. Yeah, I think pina
3: coladas will be in order there, yes, I think. So there <laughs> That's where it's really going to come in. I'm going to throw out a couple more that come sure. up in the book that I really, I'd really like us I'd like to hit. And this one I, th- I thought would be um, interesting, especially because we're all in Aspen, and it feels like it's actually of the moment. But you talk about uh, the topic of um, relaxed attention. And I, I basically read it, and I was like, I want that. You know, yes. what, what, what is it? And I have this thing that we, we all do. And I'm just curious, like, what is it, and, and how do we sure. get it, and why do we want
1: it? You know, um, we've adopted this idea of relaxed attention partly because it's equivalent, called daydreaming gets a bad rap. You know, did you ever notice, like, I see a lot of movies, I see 200 movies a year, and in in a school, like a high school movie, there's always a kid that gets in trouble for daydreaming, you know, he or she is looking out the window, and And so we as a culture believe daydreaming is bad, right? And so, gotta rebrand it, right? And so, for rebranding daydreaming, I wanna call it relaxed attention, and relaxed attention is, uh, when you're not uh, when you 're not focused you 're not on task you engaging the kind of analytical parts of your brain, but you're also not completely zoned out you know you 're not asleep you 're not playing angry birds you know you're're you're, uh, you're somewhere in between uh, this kind of relaxed attention where you're kind of holding an idea perhaps gently in your mind, looking for maybe some idea you haven't thought of yet, and so everybody has this in their lives, and so the idea would be to try to gain more advantage from it. To be mindful of when during the day do you have these moments of relaxed attention and try to find a way to capture more of the fresh ideas that that come through to you. And so for lots of people, including my brother David, who I wrote the book with, um, for him it's in the shower, right? Uh, Lots of people say, it's not me, but lots of people say they have their best ideas in the shower. And I think I know why. You know, there is no email in the shower, right? (laughs) In fact, there's nothing to read, right, except the labels on the back of the shampoo bottle. And so your mind has a chance to disengage just for a second. For some of us, that's the only, like, five minutes of the day when you're not, you know, like, reading emails or things. And so your mind floats. And so... If that's the time for you, you've got to figure a way, maybe right after you get out of the shower, to say, like, any thoughts occur to me today? My brother, taking this a step further, he's got a glass wall in the shower, he's got a whiteboard marker in there. Right? <laughs> Idea comes up, he writes it on the, on the glass wall. And so for me, it's a different time of day, and you might try this and see if it works for you. First five minutes of the morning, so what happens is, and there's some neuroscience behind this, and there's some really smart neuroscientists here. Neuroscientists here and I won't try to second-guess them, but w- w- as I understand it, there's this part of your brain, the, the frontal cortex, um, goes to sleep at night, right? Ever notice that your dreams are, like, wild? You're always, like, flying through the neighborhood or, you know, showing up at work without your clothes on or things like that, right? And so, um, so clearly that part of your brain, the executive center that's kind of controlling and managing everything, Uh, goes to sleep and lets the creative side of your brain run free. Well, my observation is that prefrontal cortex is a little bit slow to wake up in the morning, a little bit like a teenager, right? And so um, you can take advantage of those first five minutes. When you tap the snooze alarm, you got about five minutes. And so my advice to you, just try this as an experiment, would be don't jump up out of bed. Do people actually do that? I'm not sure. But don't jump out of bed, don't go back to sleep, but try to just t- take those five minutes and hold an idea in your brain, something you've been working on, something you've been wondering about, and just see if you don't get some some new thoughts on it. And then, very, very important, just like David in the shower, to have got to have a pad of paper or some digital capture tool right beside the bed. because. Your um, you know short-term memory. Your brain is dusting and cleaning all the time. They are, you know you get an idea. It's trying to get rid of that one so you can get to the to the next thought. And so you got about thirty seconds in some cases to write that idea down. Uh, but yours might not be either of those. If you've got a long commute, it might be driving or on the train. But try to work on your creative yield by, by capturing more of the value that your brain is producing for you in those moments of relaxed attention.
3: I'm going to ask one more um, uh-huh. that comes up, and that's failure, and you talked uh-huh. a little bit about this, but I guess I'm curious, why do creative people have to be more comfortable, more able to think about failure than everybody else? I mean, what, why is that a kind of key aspect of being creative?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Failure sucks. We're not saying that failure is fun. It's just that if you if you embrace it as the way that you learn, you can, you can kind of uh, disarm it a little bit. And so one way to get around this failure thing is to treat everything as an experiment, right? And so if you say, oh, this is gonna be an experiment, in other words, this might fail, and then if it fails, you say, yeah, see, I told you it might fail, right? As opposed <laughs> to, oh my God, I failed again, right? And so um, if, you, if you kind of marry up the idea of some failures with experiments, uh, it really helps you a lot. And this is not just about so, at IDEO some people think of it as like prototyping. We build hundreds of prototypes to create something. But it's far from that. It is, it is a philosophy about how you make change in the world. So uh, I was just talking a minute ago about Jim Hackett, just a wonderful guy who's, uh, just retired as CEO of Steelcase. Jim went to his senior management team, this is quite a long time ago, went to a senior management team and said, hey guys, it was was mostly guys at the time, he said, hey guys, he says, anybody notice that we're the largest maker of system furniture in the world, and yet we, the executive management team, you know, sit in these nice paneled closed-door offices. You know, anybody think that might not be exactly the right thing to do? So he wanted to announce big change. He wanted to take people out of their offices. Now, if you've ever worked in a company and gone through a change of space of any kind, you know, this is intense. This is like highly politicized. So he said, I could have done big change. So big change would be old way, new way. He said, I could have announced, like, we're blowing up your offices and you're going to live with this, this new system. He said, I could have done that. And one by one, every single manager you know, that works, that reports to me would come into my office and spend an hour telling me why they were special. And it could apply to others, maybe, but couldn't apply to them. He said, I'd have gotten resistance. But he said, I didn't announce big change. I announced small experiment. And what he said to his team, and you can apply this to any, you know, any initiative you're working on. He said, I propose the following experiment. He said, in this experiment, I'm going to leave your nice paneled offices intact. And I'd like to invite you to join me, because he's doing it too, join me in the open air leadership community, in which we will use the best of our tools. And you'll be out in the open. You'll communicate with each other. And you'll communicate with our team at large. He said, all I ask is that you give this an honest try. Right. And then a really important part of this experimentation process, Jim says, and my promise to you. Right. And Jim is this guy of deep integrity and everybody took him at his word. He said, my promise to you is do this with me for six months. And at the end of six months, what is not working, we will address. We will try to figure out how to make it better. He never said, and you get to go back to your old office. He never said that. But he said, I promise you, we will address it. And so Jim got zero people complaining or dragging because honestly who could drag their feet it's like no boss six months no I'm not the kind of person that could do something for six you know like (laughs) even if your boss wasn't the CEO that would be very hard to say oh no I never try anything new right so they did it without complaint they did it and then 20 years passed and so <laughs> when we were working on the creative competence book, I actually talked to some of the Steelcase leaders who were still there and said, it's way better. It's way better. We have much better communication with each other, with the company at large. It's better. Right. He got them to better not by announcing big change. He did it by announcing small experiment. So if you can, do, you can do this with yourself, by the way. You know, I do this with a new book. You know, books, I love books, and I love to read. But you get a 300-page book, that's a commitment. That's hard. Like, I'm not sure I have time for 300 pages. But if you say, I'm going to do this as an experiment, I'm going to read chapters one and two, and then decide whether you know I'm going to feel zero existential guilt if I stop at chapter two because the book is an experiment. I'm going to I'm going to read two chapters and then decide. You can do this with people around you. You can do this with yourself. Yes, there are, you know some people might choose to call that failure. I would choose to call it an
3: experiment. Creative confidence, and I'm just kind of, how do you play that out against something uh, like
1: the notion of creative cockiness? Like, where does it
3: get too far? Um,
1: I'm just curious. You know, I've been out, the book came out last October and I've been slowly around the world, uh, going to 11 countries this year to talk about creative confidence. Iceland, who knew that they cared about creative confidence in Iceland? But anyhow, and then I bump into this, because we use the word confidence in the title, it goes to, you know, like overconfidence, it goes to arrogance and Whatever, and ironically, although I still like the title, um, it misleads some people because we are not talking about thinking you're the smartest person in the room, right? It's actually kind of the opposite. Creative confidence is not about knowing the answer, creative confidence is about trusting a process that says, ooh, this is a tough challenge, and I don't know the answer, but I know how to attack this challenge. And I'm going to start with empathy. I'm going to go out in the world and understand how humans interact with my challenge. right? I'm going to prototype my cha- the, the possible solution to my challenge. And then I'm going to listen really well, again, to how people react to my prototype without being defensive about it. right? And then when I think I've got a solution, I'm going to build a story around my idea and then see how people react to my story. And so it's confidence in, a, in an approach, in a process, maybe in a mindset. Uh, but it's not it's not confidence in saying I got all the answers. It's pretty much the opposite of that. I think that people had tended to think that if you're creative you're just a it's like this
3: wild, noisy thing. Like, it's like, right. you're, just like you're basically, everyone's like yelling stuff out. And then um, one of the things we've realized, I think, over the years is that the most important creative act is actually listening. You know, right. that actually listening really well. And
1: I think the right. Doug Dietz story is a, is a great example of that. It's one of the most critical things. Yeah, this thing about you know, defining that the, the creative ones are the noisy ones and stuff like that. I mean, what, what's happened, we've discovered both in research for the book and then subsequent to its publication, is people have a pretty narrow definition of what creative is. Right. And they, and part of making that definition so narrow, they, they've drawn a circle and they are on the outside of it. And uh, we had a really sweet, uh, I like I said, I like all 100 of our interviewees. And one really sweet one was this uh, young woman who works for us, her name is Jill Levinson. And Jill um, walked around, as many people do, like, oh, I'm not creative, I'm not creative. right? And in case she wasn't sure about which, you know, where she was, whether she was inside that circle or not, Jill uh, first worked for an ad agency out of school, and an ad agency You know, they've got the creative department, right? And if you're not in the creative department, you know, draw your own conclusion, right? it, (laughs) It supported her belief system around that. And so she came to IDEO still holding on to that belief system. And she, I actually thought she was creative from the beginning. She shows up at work with these beautiful cakes. She, I guess, takes cake decorating courses and, you know, she brings these cakes that are like works of art to the office. But she'll say, oh, no, no, I'm not creative. I didn't make up the recipe. For that cake. So, like, uh, you know, I'm gonna keep making Make it a little <laughs> smaller. No, I I may create art, but it's not my art, so I'm I'm still not creative. And then a really fun thing happened, which was um, Jill just on the side started playing around with Pinterest. And she's got six followers, you know, it's her six girlfriends, which is fun, and but her stuff is pretty good. She's got these really interesting pins, and so the six, you know, like tell their six friends and goes, and next thing Jill knows, she's got a thousand followers, which is pretty darn respectable, right? And then uh, it continues to build a little bit. But then one day, she has this really, really good pin. If you spent any time on Pinterest, you may have seen this one. It's about pinata cookies anybody ever see this? Well, first of all, you have to make seven different colors of dough and put them in the fridge overnight. This is really, Jill made the pinata cookies for me. I'm so indebted to her because this takes a lot of work, right? Seven different colors of dough, and then you put them in the fridge overnight, and then you you line them up, and then you roll them out, and then you put the cookie cutter, and then you cut, oh, there, it's in the shape of a burro, you know, of a donkey, right? But you have to make three, and so you've made three cutouts in the shape of a donkey, and then on the middle one, you take a juice glass, and you cut a circle out, and then you put the three together, and then you put M&Ms in the circle that you've Cut out of the middle layer, and then the kid breaks it open, and it—you know—M&Ms come out like it's a pinata. And you must really love that kid if you're making those pinata cookies, right? But they're very—they're so beautiful too, which is I think partly why it works so well on Pinterest. And so Jill suddenly has a hundred thousand followers. Right? And then Pinterest, you know, they got big data, right? And they see this trend line. And Jill Levinson's line goes like this one day. And they said, what's up with this Jill Levinson woman? Let, you know, let's, let's go talk to her. And they do. And they put her on their homepage, And next thing Jill knows, she's got a million followers. So my book goes to press, it's a million followers. And it's currently 1.8. So I have a deal with Jill that the day it hits 2 million, she's going to tell me. Right? But meanwhile, this is a big change on Jill. You know, it gets back to listening. She's listening to her followers. And she says, you know what? She says, I am creative. Right? I'm not creative in that old way. I don't, I don't make up the recipes for things. She says, but my followers tell me I have a creative eye. Right? I'm a kind of a creative collector of ideas. And my followers really, really like it. Right? So I'm going to do more of this. And so first thing that happens is Jill, we call it flipping. Jill goes from I'm not creative to I am creative. And when this happens, people just people glow. I mean, it is, it is really fun. For them and you know and so it might be enough i mean it's kind of enough for me that jill has that great self-actualization but it doesn't stop there jill now you know with this like a new kind of i'm creative outlook she takes on bigger tasks she's she's got more like resilience when things don't go you know well all the time you know she's she's um you know she's just making a bigger contribution at work I, by the way Part of what attracted me to Jill's story is I ran into her mom somewhere and she says, do you know my daughter? She says, she is so different. You know, she's just like come alive. And she came alive partly through this process in which she now believes she's creative. And we are feeling the effect. I mean, Jill herself is, but we're feeling it too, right? And so I think Jill's story is all of our stories right? What Jill did, if you think about it, is she just stretched that circle a little bit. She changed her definition of what's creative a little bit. And so she enabled her to step inside the circle instead of being outside the circle. Changed her her impact on the world.
0: That's author Tom Kelly speaking with Fred Dust. Kelly penned the book Creative Confidence and founded the global design firm IDEO. How is creativity cultivated? What characteristics do creative types share? University of Iowa neuroscientist Nancy Andreason shares her fascinating research into the creative mind. Here's her lecture at the Aspen Ideas Festival.
2: Once you get into the research literature, there's debate about what constitutes creativity. Is it the same as having a high IQ? Uh, does it require talent or skill? The consensus is that The best definition is that it's an ability to perceive things that are novel or original and yet useful as well. Now, useful is almost always construed in a very broad way. The arts are useful, music is useful, dance is useful because they uplift the human spirit. Mathematics is useful, science is useful as well. The issue of the relationship between creativity and intelligence was brought up very clearly in a study that was done early in the 20th century by a psychologist named Lewis Terman. He was a professor out at Stanford and eventually the chair of the department. And he designed a very visionary longitudinal study to identify highly creative children and follow them the rest of their lives to see how they turned out. These kids were identified through a complex process and initially they were tested in every way he could think of you know, medical measures, height, weight, uh, general health, social function, how many books were in the home, ranging from none to 6,000, educational background of parents, and so on. What eventually came out from this study was that though these kids who became called the termites were highly intelligent, they made very few creative contributions. Many of them didn't even graduate from college. There were something like six Rhodes Scholars, a very small number of high achievers educationally. They were in California, a couple were Hollywood figures. But other than that, they uh, led surprisingly ordinary lives. What that, that study has told us is that having a high IQ does not necessarily make you creative. It doesn't prevent you from being creative, but it's not a guarantee of being creative. People think of creativity as involving the Eureka moment, and the classic study here is Archimedes, who was given the challenge of trying to determine whether a golden crown was actually pure gold or an alloy. And it was irregular shape, and so it wasn't easy to figure out how to measure it. He figured it out with a flash of insight Uh, when he got in a bathtub and realized he was displacing water with his body, which had a certain mass, and he could do the same thing with this crown. The amount of water displaced, divided by its weight, would indicate whether it was pure gold or not. And legend has it that he got so excited that he yelled, Eureka, which is Greek, for I have found it, and ran out of the house with nothing on. Most people think that that eureka moment is the essence of creativity, but it really isn't. And this is maybe one of the most important points I'm going to make. The creative process goes through really four stages. A very important stage is preparation. Now this is really important because, you know, when we educate our kids, we're preparing them to do creative things. It's building up an information base, a knowledge base that can be built on later. Then there's a process of incubation, And this is usually kind of a relaxed time when people make connections, often unconsciously. And then there's the eureka experience, the moment of huge inspiration or insight. But perhaps most important of all is production. You may have all kinds of insights, but if you don't put them into action, you're not a creative person. It does no good to have lots and lots of ideas if you don't put them to use. So I've talked to lots and lots of highly creative people about how they think, and this is an example from Neil Simon. He talked about how when he writes, he slips into a state that's apart from reality. He said, I don't write consciously. It's as if the muse sits on my shoulder. He even said, I never know how a play is going to end until I write the very ending. He said, I don't want to know because if I did, I might tip the audience off and ruin the ending for them. This again has implications for education. As a kid, I always had a problem when I was asked to write an essay because I knew when I wrote, I never knew what I was gonna say until I finished the essay. I mean, I pretty much wrote like Neil Simon. And I finally learned to satisfy the teacher, I had to write my essay, make an outline of it, give it to her so that I would have an outline and then she would be happy. (laughs) Uh, An example from Poincaré, One evening, contrary to my custom, I drank black coffee and could not sleep. Ideas rose in crowds. I felt them collide until pairs interlocked, so to speak, making a stable combination. By the next morning, I had established the existence of a class of Fuchsian functions, those which come out of the hypergeometric series. I had only to write out the results, which took but a few hours. Famous example from Coleridge, the poet, uh, romantic poet, this is about his composition of the great poem Kubla Khan. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree and so on, uh, beautiful poem. He wrote this poem when he was out in the country. He was relatively young at the time. He was uh, considered sickly. He, like many creative people, was a college dropout. And he had taken some opium and he fell asleep. And he'd been reading a travelogue And he describes then how uh, he was asleep for three hours, at least of the external senses, during which time he has the most vivid confidence that he could not have composed less than from 200 to 300 lines. If that, indeed, can be called composition, in which all the images rose up before him in crowds, with a parallel production, or as things, with a parallel production of the correspondent expressions, without any sensation or consciousness of effort. Then what happened? There was a knock on the door. He started to write it down. There was a knock on the door. He had to go run an errand. He came back and he had lost almost the entire poem. We just have, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 lines of it. So how do we get at this creative process? Well, this is a paper that I wrote quite a long time ago now where I used positron emission tomography or PET scanning, to look at a mental state that we called rest, uh, and used it as an entry into understanding unconscious processes, those kinds of processes that prompted Coleridge to write Kubla Khan. During rest, people were asked just to relax. Our instructions were re- relax, think about whatever comes to mind. We looked at that as a specific task rather than as an experimental as an experimental specific task. Because, introspectively myself, I realized that when I'm resting my mind, so to speak, when I stretch out on a bed and just think, that's when I get some of my best ideas. What this does is actually tap into what are known as episodic memories, or memories that are very personal and rich in emotional meaning. And so really this state that we call rest is a state in which the mind is working very actively, but at least partially an unconscious level. And it is a resource really for creativity, for dreams, for re- religious experiences. And in this study, these are the areas that I saw were enhanced during rest. And the point is not all those fancy neuroanatomical names like frontal regions and temporal regions and pre but the point down at the bottom. These are parts of the brain that we call association cortex. The human brain is, as you know, very, very highly developed and uh, very, very complex, and it develops over time and doesn't really achieve maturity until about age 25. And part of what makes it so complex is the fact that it's gyrified, it's crumpled and folded. And if we look at the parts that are the last to myelinate or the last to mature, these are the association cortices. In the human brain, uh, they're, they're massive. They're more than half of the human brain. So these areas are not what we call dedicated sensory motor regions. Sensory motor regions take in vision, hearing, and so on. What they include instead are uh, memory networks, and their job is to link things together to make associations or to make connections. And, of course, during rest, they represent intrinsic activity rather than a response to the outside world and what we've been able to discover by measuring that activity is that activity in the association cortex accounts for most of the brain's energy consumption and so this has actually been called the brain's dark energy or its dark matter their job is to make connections and so it was a reasonable hypothesis It came to me in a semi-eureka moment to think that creative people have an especially rich repertoire of associations they have more going on in their association cortex than the average person. They have an enhanced ability to see connections and often connections that other people cannot. Shakespeare was famous for, or is famous among scholars for having a vocabulary twice the size of his contemporaries. And that's one of the things that makes him the great writer that he was. He had a huge verbal lexicon in his association cortex that he could draw on when he wrote. So let's turn to the topic of genius and insanity. This is an idea that's been around for a long time. Aristotle said those who have become eminent in philosophy, politics, poetry, and the arts have all had tendencies toward melancholia. Famous couplet by John Dryden, great wits are sure to madness near allied and thin partitions do their bounds divide. Well, is there a relationship and if so, to what illnesses, and are different kinds of creativity related to different kinds of illnesses. I was fortunate to do what I think is the best modern and truly empirical study uh, of creativity and mental illness, and I was able to do it because, as you've heard, I was originally an English professor, and uh, the English department and the Writers' Workshop at Iowa uh, lived side-by-side, side. and so I you know, was very familiar with the workshop crowd. And so over the years, I was able to recruit 30 writers. Writer's workshop is the oldest, most famous creative writing program in the world. When I put this study together, I was influenced by my interest in Joyce, who had a daughter with schizophrenia and himself had many schizotypal traits. I was also influenced by uh, Bertrand Russell, Uh, I was actually a triple major history, English, and philosophy as an undergrad, and really admired Russell. He had a family full of schizophrenia, his uncle William, his aunt Agatha, his son John, his granddaughter Helen. Oh, and Einstein, son with schizophrenia, himself, schizotypal traits. What I expected to find fool that I was, <laughs> was that the writers wouldn't have an increased rate of psychiatric illness in comparison with educationally matched controls who were not obviously creative. They turned out, some of them, to have creative interests and hobbies and so on, but you know, I was matching on education. I thought the first-degree relatives, parents, brothers and sisters, children, would have an increased rate of schizophrenia. And what I found in fact, was that the writers had an astronomically high rate of depression. No schizophrenia at all. They had a high rate of alcoholism as well. Their first-degree relatives also had a high rate of mood disorder. And their first-degree relatives had an increased rate of creativity as compared to the control group. You know, we say in science, if you have a hypothesis, which you're supposed to have, even though science doesn't necessarily always proceed that way. If you have a hypothesis and you don't confirm it, then you've probably found something really interesting. And I did not confirm my hypothesis. I found this increased rate of mood disorder and then the increases in the family members. So there seemed to be some kind of diathesis that predisposed to both mood disorder and creativity. And of course the question is why? Is this due to nature? Is it a genetic thing that runs in families? Or is it due to nurture? one thing that kind of argued against a heavy input from nurture was that the creativity in family members was diverse. I used the example of Kurt Vonnegut, himself a writer. Uh, His father was a famous architect. His brother was a famous chemist. Uh, His children were all creative, but in different ways. This was a pretty common theme. So it can't be just nurture. So I finished that study and published it, and then what next? Well, you know, the people were all writers, and it could be that there's something about writing that predisposes to mood disorder. You you know, it's a lonely thing, you have to write by yourself. What What would happen if I studied visual artists or mathematicians? The second study is still a work in progress. When I finish, I will have at least 15 artists, 15 scientists, and 30 non-creative individuals matched on IQ. When I say non-creative, what I'm really saying is we're matching these people on education, uh, and we do not know them to have creative hobbies, and uh, some of them will turn out to have some creative abilities for sure, but they're not the high high achievers that the so-called creative genius group is. And because we can now use functional imaging, we can study their brains directly. So for this current study, I sent them a letter of invitation. I picked these people out because they've gotten something important, like a Fields Medal. When they arrive, the first thing they do is come in and have dinner at my home. And this was not a planned thing. It's turned out to be a very useful thing. Iowans are hospitable, and so generally, well, always, actually, I picked them up at the airport, Uh, we have a home that's 10 minutes away from the airport, that is a 40-acre nature retreat. I fix them a nice dinner. We just relax and talk and get to know one another. Turns out to be a really important preparation because the next morning at 8 a.m., they're gonna start the study, which is, I would say, strenuous. We uh, do a MR scan that lasts for an hour and a half, Uh, cognitive testing, a long interview, We debrief them, and then they get their own personal brain book and a 3D model of their own brain. (laughs) These are some of the people who are in the study, uh, George Lucas, Bill Thurston, Fields Medalist, Jane Smiley, Novelist, Liz Blackbird, who got the Nobel for discovering telomerase. So we call the farm Barred Owl Farm because I used to teach Shakespeare, and we have a lot of barred owls. So what have we learned about the creative brain so far? Well, these three tasks that we use really do activate the association cortex nicely and more prominently in our creative people. And very interestingly, the patterns are similar in artists and in scientists. Why should that be? It's very possible that the creative process is similar in art and science. Both require actually preparation, incubation, flashes of insight, uh, and a superior ability to make associations or connections. Another thing is that many creative people actually have interests and skills in both the arts and the sciences. Famously, someone like Einstein played the violin. And something that has emerged from studying these people from the arts and sciences is that there are a lot of polymaths among them. And being a polymath, someone who is good at many things, I think enhances creativity, because if you are a polymath, you can see a much bigger picture, a much bigger world, than if you're focused on only one thing. George Lucas is a perfect example. If you ask him what he does, he says, well, I'm a writer. He did write all of his, everything he's produced. And he's very, very, very proud of it. I said, do you think Spielberg is highly creative? He said, well, you know, Spielberg doesn't write his own material. (laughs) So, <laughs> uh, But anyway, he's a great director, and he personally has all kinds of interests, architecture, anthropology, history, and neuroscience. He, when we showed him his brain images, I said, that's the amygdala there. He said, oh, the amygdala, the seat of fear in the brain. That's why I called Queen Amidala, Amidala, because fear is what finally destroys Darth Vader. So, you know, very knowledgeable won the National Medal of Technology for Digital Imaging. Industrial Light and Magic is one of his great brainchilds, and he's a hugely successful businessman. I think that counts as being a polymath. Many of our great figures have been polymaths. Michelangelo, some of my biggest heroes, Leonardo. Does this have implications for education? Yes, I think it does. We have a tendency to encourage people, kids, To track in a particular area, this gets more and more severe as they proceed on into high school and college and graduate school. Uh, And I think if we encourage people to specialize too early or too much, we may deprive them of the ability to see the big picture. Uh, And we may diminish creative capacities. What about mental illness in this group? Would I find any schizophrenia? And these are all people who had some association with schizophrenia. Well, here is the very preliminary uh, tabulation. Forty-five percent of these people have some kind of mood disorder. That's less than in the workshop study, but it's still very high. The rates of mental illness are spread evenly across the artists and the scientists, and we are beginning to have hints of some schizophrenia spectrum diagnoses, uh, primarily in the scientist group. But there's also actually a whiff in the writer group, artist group. Again, we have increased rates of mental illness in first-degree relatives. I reread all the narratives, which are 35 to 40 pages long, single-spaced, ten-point font. Very detailed amount of information about these people. And among, At the top of the stack, there were two. Whose parents had died by suicide, whose mothers had died by suicide, and I just almost wanted to cry as I read that. Uh, So these people have often had very difficult early lives, and yet they've managed to achieve to extraordinary levels. Well, why would there be a link between creativity and mental illness? Well, as we say in science, if you work at the cutting edge, you're going to bleed. This is really true. (laughs) Uh, Creative people are adventuresome, exploratory, they take risks. When you're exploratory and take risks, you're bound to get rejected. And yet they say over and over that they have to persist because they're really driven by the visions of whatever it is that they want to accomplish. But if you're in that situation, you are bound to experience psychic pain, loneliness, depression, anxiety, sometimes using alcohol or other drugs to dampen the pain. So that's part of the reason for the connection. Creative people, This is something that I found very interesting. People are often autodidacts. An autodidact is a person who wants to teach himself rather than being spoon-fed in a standard way. I chose three very major Silicon Valley creative geniuses to illustrate the point, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerman, all college dropouts. And if you start looking around, you'll notice a lot more. So there's something that differentiates them And it, I think, is at least partly this need to A, teach themselves, determine themselves, and the educational system is failing them in their ability to do that. So for many of these people, standard education was not particularly helpful. And a lot of these people taught themselves to read at an early age as well. Very importantly, creativity is also something that's really joyous, and even when they have real problems with depression or anxiety or alcohol or whatever, they are almost all happy people as well. One man said, and he actually, kind of a shy guy, and he made me turn off the recorder when he said this, but I said, can I use the quote anyway? And he said, yeah. Uh, Doing good science is simply the most pleasurable thing you can do. It's like having good sex It excites you all over and makes you feel as if you are all-powerful and complete." Another one said, "...there's no greater joy that I have in my life than having an idea that's a good idea. At that moment, it pops into my head. It's so deeply satisfying and rewarding. My nucleus accumbens, which is the reward center in the brain, my nucleus accumbens is probably going nuts when it happens." Or, "...there's an immense sense of bliss which comes over me directly when a new idea wakens in me and begins to assume a different form. Everything within me starts pulsing and quivering. Hardly have I begun the sketch before one thought follows another. You know, I, I, as I've said, I, I, I like all these people. They're just a joy to have around for me and for our research staff. And another trait that they have that's hugely admirable, they're very altruistic people and this is one of them, saying, it's compassion that brings you happiness. It's, it's not pleasure. Pleasure's okay, it's not a bad thing. It's a nice little thing. There's nothing wrong with it. I tell students, if you're going into this to get rich and famous, you're never gonna make it. And if you do make it, you're never gonna be happy. So I suggest you go out and find something you actually care about, because rich and famous is not a career option. Creative people ha- do have lots of ideas. Uh, one said, You have to have a willingness to take an enormous risk with your whole heart and soul and mind on something where you know the impact, if it worked, would be utterly transformative. Part of creativity is picking the little bubbles that come up to your conscious mind and picking which ones to let grow and which ones to give access to more of your mind and then have that translate into action. So, what's the bottom line? I think. Creativity is a metal gift. It's a gift. I happen to have studied classical Greek a long time ago among my many oddities, and the word for gift in Greek is charisma. So, creativity is a kind of charisma that permits people to perceive in original and novel ways, to see things that other people can't. And it is shared across disciplines such as math and literature and other sciences. And it does make its possessor different. And I think almost all of these people have always thought they were a little different from many of their peers. And it's not always easy to feel different. And it makes them then sometimes vulnerable to mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia or mood disorder. So the visionary brain, the creative brain. Some people see things that others cannot, and they're right and we say they're creative geniuses. Some people see things that others cannot, and they're wrong, and we call them mentally ill. Uh, These are the last lines of Kublai Khan, and I think they convey, uh, I guess, the scariness of creativity. Beware, beware his flashing eyes, his floating hair, Weave a circle round him thrice and close your eyes in holy dread for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise.
0: That's neuroscientist Dr. Nancy Andreason, speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, rate the show. It helps spread the word about the podcast. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.